Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And this is episode 80 of the podcast. And tonight we are covering the top five high society movies. So not to put you on the spot too quickly, Frank, but for some reason you're a little uncomfortable with this episode. <clears throat> oh, no, I don't know why. Um, I mean, that's not inaccurate. I don't know. I just felt weird watching these these movies. Like, maybe it's because they're all good or no, I don't know. Is that something a, you're something you're not used to on the podcast? Well, I mean, they're all like of exceeding quality, I guess. Like, there's some really classic movies in this in this lineup. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, the lifestyles of the rich, I guess, is maybe a little um feels like anti-topical or something. I don't know. Yeah, especially because they're by and large, except for like one movie portrayed with a pretty high amount of deference and you know I don't sure know. it is it's certainly not of the times necessarily to be um kind of pro high society i guess like in the sense of a lot of these movies are i mean i'm not gonna lie the only reason this list exists is because i wanted to talk about the number one movie and it was the way that i could find to talk about the number one movie so so your Machiavellian scheme has led to this. Yeah, I did Machiavellian, I guess. It was just like, shit. Like, what, what topic could this movie be a part of? And it was the first thing that came to mind. And then uh, a couple others, like, on this list came, like, I thought of. And then, I mean, I like all five of these movies quite a bit. Yeah. Like, I think they're all really, really good movies. I think um, you said it last week, is this might be one of the higher quality lists overall in terms of outside of like the ones that were years of like 1969 19 sure. yeah. I mean I did one thing that I almost never do which is um I looked at a uh, metacritic and rotten tomato scores for these mm-hmm. movies hmm. as I was watching them and I usually have I don't care like I just like to wait until you tell me yeah um but I was genuinely curious cuz I was I was thinking like it has to skew like really high um and it did like the one movie that I thought would skew a little lower did um and we'll talk about why that is, but like all the other ones, you know. Okay, so really, I, I have two questions for you. So one, what went into making, like, what went into like determining what high society was in some ways? Is it just the milieu? Like, is it the types of people? Like, is it the, what is it? Um, I think that the wealth of the people involved has to be, a determining factor in some way in the plot of the movie, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like wealth or social status or setting maybe. And I think that all five movies um, in like predominant aspects of their narrative, like draw upon the social standing and wealth of the people, you know, involved Um maybe the number two movie the least but still like none of those things are happening if those people aren't wealthy sure and it's very clearly discussed like several times like how much wealth they have um so i still think that even though it's probably the one that's the least focused on that that it still is an integral aspect of the the plot right. um and then movies where i felt like i didn't necessarily want something like the great gatsby um or 
and I thought about that. I thought about like Philadelphia Experiment, um, the Browning version. There's a bunch of stuff that like I thought of putting on there, but to me, it had to be a somewhat like open-eyed view of wealthy people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to put a movie in there that was a uh, I don't want to use the term whitewashing, but like, I love the Lady Eve, but the Lady Eve is kind of like, I don't know, like just sort of like a wink and a nod to the fact that that man's like supremely wealthy. And I guess that's why that she's like, I don't know. That would have been a good choice actually, if we hadn't already done that. Um, so yes, yeah, so there had to be like somewhat of a, like at least a like acknowledging eye to the fact that, maybe being like among the cultural and like monetary elite like has its own issues and whatnot gotcha or that those people aren't maybe the greatest people even though i think that a couple like uh, several of these movies are a lot more like i don't know tender handed or whatever when dealing with that topic but i think they all still do point out the foibles and um you know faults of like the upper class at least in terms of like in a film narrative, all in their own ways, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um. Okay. Well, you, I think you were starting to anticipate my second question already, um, and you mentioned the number of movies that you considered. Was there anything that came really close and didn't make it? Um. I thought about some things. Like, I keep wanting to put Clueless on a list, and I haven't done that yet. But I think the Clueless is good. Um, there's things like Down and Out in Beverly Hills and um, Trading Places that I think would have been good. That were kind of like also rands, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Gatsby for, is another one, for instance, that like I thought of. Which version are you talking about? The DiCaprio version. Okay. Um, I think that even though there's a lot of flaws to that movie, I think that visually it's... Um, one of the best like aesthetically stylized renditions of um, the upper class and elite. Okay. I think it does a really good job of that. And then there's like, um, again, like the Browning version, um, some other movies from Last Emperor, I thought about actually um, pretty seriously considered mm. putting on there. But to me, that's like, that's another list that that movie goes on even though I love it. So, and there were others. So I, I wish I, a lot of times when I make my lists, I do like a preliminary list in my notes. Um, and then I pare down that to like whatever makes the list, but I didn't do it this time because I pretty much knew what I wanted to put on it. So, yeah. Gotcha. All right. Um, so I just want to remind everybody that, uh, you can follow us in a number of different places. You can do uh, follow us through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Um, we will. We are already on Spotify. You can also hear soon in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, you can follow us on Alexa. What else did I ever tell you about, Frank? That oh I, yeah, you told me another one the other yeah, day. I can't that remember. I was surprised by. Yeah, I did like a, a little update to see what we weren't on, and um, we should be pretty much everywhere covering mostly like Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Every every podcatcher app should be able to should be able to find us on. Um, 
Then our host Podbean um, is uh, another place that you can find us uh, easily on the web. Um, and we, I know we've had a lot of new listeners recently again, which is nice. Um, as always, if anybody wants to reach out to us, you can reach out to us on our Facebook page or Instagram uh, or through our Gmail, two guys, five movies at gmail.com. Uh, always we have in mind the idea of people giving us list ideas um, eventually. So we are open to that. If there's specific lists you'd like to have Frank create and we'll cover them. And um, other than that, Thanks for the recent downloads. And you ready to get started, Frank? Yeah, let's get All it. right. So number five on your list is 1990s Metropolitan, directed by Whit Stillman. It stars Caroline Farina, Edward Clements, Chris Eigman, and Taylor Nichols. It has a 93% from critics and an 85% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you put it on the list? Um, so following a group of, um, mostly wealthy, uh, socialites in the waning days of the 1980s, um, it's more or less, uh, like a comedy of manners, kind of like, I don't know, Mansfield Park maybe or something like that. Um, with the majority of the action taking place in you know, the parlors and living rooms of, like, the upper class in Manhattan um, as they discuss ideas and philosophical differences and they kind of, like, form these miniature alliances and romantic attachments and um, mostly just, like, gossip about other people and sort of, like, backbite each other and um, pretty... uh in terms of like the narrative itself, it's a pretty interesting examination, I think, of like what a group of friends actually is. Um, even though it's in kind of a moderately unrelatable set of circumstances, at least I think to like people like us mm-hmm. um, who aren't like overtly wealthy. Um, it has uh, what I call um, shit. What's that? What's the dude's name or the Spanish prisoner? David Mamet. Yeah, it's got that mammoth dialogue to it, which is like so precise and perfect that it's almost impossible for most actors to say convincingly. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's like th- this, this is an incredibly well written movie. It's got some really great ideas to it. Um, it does a really expert job of building like these interpersonal relationships between this group of, you know, kids like on their way out of high school into like finishing school and college. Um, and that's like the one downfall to it is just like there's some stiltedness to the dialogue at times um, with Chris Eigman being the only guy who can really deftly deliver like the lines in a way that feels naturalistic and like he feels like a real like a real character. Yeah. Um, and that being said, you know, it's got some really, um, really good bits of dialogue. I think that um, the idea of the kind of the Tom Townsend character who's the other side of the tracks kid that was a one-time rich, but is now like by the standards of this group of people poor, you know, but is still ingratiated himself through his, um, his personality and his ideas. Um, that's an interesting thing to watch. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, like a non-psychotic version of, uh, Tom Ripley, you know, in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. in the way that, um, the way that you can tell that he wants so badly to be a part of like that group in terms of like their wealth, 
but also has all these kind of like borderline embarrassing, like childish, like anti anti grouping, anti wealth, anti debutante ideas. And as soon as he gets the chance to be a part of it, he's like so willing to like throw away um, those ideals. Right. What's it? What's his? What's the guy he followed? Is, is it Fournier? Is that who it is? That yeah, he, Fournier. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, he's like a socialist who gets a little taste, and then he's like right. all in. Yeah. yeah. Then he doesn't want it to end, and he wants to. He doesn't understand like why the group can't stay together forever. Right. Mm. But really, um, I mean, I think that I think that Stillman, and I'm actually I've been practicing saying his name. Because I call him Stiltman all the time in my head. Um, uh, Whit Stillman, I think, is somebody that you either appreciate or you really despise. Like, I don't know that there's much middle ground with him. Um, he's not. He's making movies that are very specific in the sense that they're always just about the interactions of, like, typically wealthy people with one another. Um and very educated people, very well-spoken people, um, because he bases it, I think, on his, I mean, I would consider it like a, whatever, overly optimistic view of his own, like, social circle and group of friends. But in this movie, Barcelona, um, Last Days of Disco, like, definitely, it all has that very punchy, very, like, on-point dialogue that's, you know, like, hyper Gilmore Girls almost, maybe. Um but still a really good movie, really interesting, great performances in it. Yeah, no, it was, uh, I've only, I actually only seen this once and it was, um, it was nice to watch it again. Um, I pretty much agree with everything that you said. Um, and would especially like to point out that I think Chris Eigman is, is limited. And I think in the types of roles he can do, but has never gotten a chance to do those roles enough um and has not been cast enough in his life because that guy is absolutely brilliant in the things yeah. that he can do um you know it's funny like i didn't even think about it until i just said it like i just realized that he's um fucking digger right right that's exactly on, uh, on that Girls. has to be why they cast him right he, he's the and, guy that can deliver that dialogue right the one guy like him and luke you know out of like the supporting cast members it just nails that dialogue yeah like all mm-hmm. the time yeah I and mean, Digger especially because he's coming from that um yeah that place of wealth and uh, privilege. So right. how far is Digger away from Nick Smith? Right. I mean, it's, right. It's I mean, the same. he's it, yeah. him, but like older. Sure. Yep. Um, I mean, so again, like I, I think that I like all of what Stillman's movies, mm-hmm. but it's something where it's weird. It's almost like a guilty pleasure, like watching them. Like, I kind of feel the same way watching Metropolitan than I do watching, like, Hellraiser, you know, where it's like, here's this well-crafted thing that I understand that would be very polarizing for most people, and a lot of people wouldn't necessarily appreciate. I don't know if you feel the same way. Maybe that's just me being weird, but... Is it guilt? Is that what you're... It's not even guilt. It's just, like... Like, I recognize sometimes when I'm watching movies that, like, this is not for everyone. You know what I mean? Right. And you and I have had that conversation before where, like, somebody says, hey, would I like it? And I say, I don't know if you'd like it. Like, it's very specifically. And I think that with Stillman stuff is very specifically geared towards. I agree. Yep. Like, this weird combination of 
abject narcissism combined with like an appreciation for the stage and like you really have to and again this is part of the abject narcissism i feel feel personally attacked (laughs) well you have to have like a pretty distinct knowledge of like literature and right politics and philosophy i mean like to really understand it it's like you have to be somewhat educated i think maybe you don't but like i feel like you gain more from it by actually understanding what his characters are talking about Mm -hmm. and i think that's a very um i don't know uh what i'm looking for elitist it's but it's worse than elitist because it's very it's like it's like building walls up against you know it's exclusionary there you go that's that's what i was going um to like some viewers yeah. And I think that maybe that's why he hasn't achieved like for as talented a director as he is and as talented a writer, like why he hasn't achieved the level of success maybe that he should, because you know. Yeah. Well, like you can't always like make everything I don't know. It can't be about how smart you are. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh Destin Howe, um, from Washington Post, um, I didn't write you know copy his review but he um he he uses almost that ex- maybe that exact term um of uh exclusionary um uh because we never talked about race uh with him but um do- doesn't how is black and um mm. he says he felt like no connection to the characters whatsoever even though um you know he followed everything along but it's just he just didn't feel like he had a part right. in that world whatsoever and um I mean, makes sense to me. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, again, like one of the things they discuss pretty frequently is this idea of um, what do they call themselves? Like ums or something like that. Yeah. Like urban, urban hot bourgeois or something. Mm-hmm. Ups, I guess. Is the yeah. Term. Right. And that's the thing is like they talk about like well we're wasps we're, you know, like these like second generation or whatever like landed gentry white upper-class Americans and yeah so I can see that it's like being exclusionary in that sense too it's interesting like I don't really think about things like that I guess because they all are white and I'm white so right. like I don't have that automatic right yeah. feeling of exclusion from like sure but, absolutely yeah but all those things aside like it still is a really well-written and well-acted movie and yeah so our good some friend genuinely oh. funny moments our friend Owen Gleiberman, um, uh, you this might actually agree with some of the things you said. Um, he says that the characters here um, might as well be high school thespians who have been cast in an old coward play, and then when the play ended, kept on acting that way. Two thirds of the way through, however, we learn that the characters do have conventional outside lives. They're mildly self-deprecating. Oh, what an an acronistic breed we are banter is just a pose an occasional stick the fact that stillman withholds this information for so long feels like a cheat instead of a full-bodied comic portrait of the coming out party set metropolitan offers a thin cartoon version when it uses the cartoonish just to make everyone on screen seem irresistibly cute uh Whitman or Stillman uh writes some good lines, but except for Nick, a bitchy epigram spouting bon vivant with a heart of gold, he doesn't really create characters. And there's the point that I think maybe you somewhat agree with a little bit. Right. But um 
Uh, and his worldview seems quite chaste for a movie about contemporary young adults. In this film, sex is shoved so far to one side that we can't tell whether it's the characters who prefer it that way or Stillman himself. Metropolitan has a great subject, all right, but it treats that subject with white kid gloves. So I would argue that I agree with that, but I think that it's, I think it's the Nick character that says it best. And when he's talking about, um, what's her name? Penny, whatever. Mm-hmm. The girl that supposedly did um, Chinese finger cups or whatever you call it. Right. Um, yeah. That she's a composite. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what everybody but Nick feels like is a composite. Right. Like here's, and I'm sure that, you know, because Stillman was writing based on like his own experiences as a youth. So they probably are just composites of everything. And maybe to him, like, he is that character, you know what I mean? Like, that's... Oh, see, I think he's probably Tom. Think so? Yeah, I think I think he's Tom, and Nick is, like, these people that were more of a part of that world than him, and, like, he found absolutely fascinating and charismatic, and he um, has, like, some sort of... Uh wariness but allegiance to them in some way like um yeah that makes sense like the people that he was able to ingratiate himself with with his charm and intellect and ability to quote yeah and i think stillman was just as charmed by those people and but i i i i can't imagine he's not the tom character Um, i mean i'm not I'll, i'll be honest with you like tom reminds me of me a lot when i was young right like i always would have wanted to say that i was nick but like the unwavering, like, pretentiousness towards certain subjects and, right. like, authors and creators that then, like, immediately falls apart once you're exposed to the real world. Like, that was a lot of what I was, like, as a kid. I mean, I, I think for the people that this movie is for, I think Tom is their is their character. Tom is the, is the representation of them. Right. I mean, I think Tom's your end to this movie is because he does he's the one that doesn't have money anymore, even though he kind of has you know some relations with that world and um he's the more liberal he's the one that's kind of saying that like you know this culture as it is is going to die um you know i mean and i think um so i think he kind of is a representation of the the audience at that point but anyway yeah um worth watching yeah worth watching and um yeah i some point hopefully someday maybe we get to talk about another one of his movies. Yeah. Um, Free I, on HBO Max too, if you subscribe. Yep. yep. Like like eighty some minutes, definitely um, worth checking out. I think. Absolutely. All right. So number four on your list is 2000's American Psycho. It is directed by Mary Heron. Stars Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Chloe Sevigny, and Reese Witherspoon. Has a 69% from critics and an 85% from audiences. Um, People that are listening to this, I can't imagine they don't know about this movie already, but maybe if you want to give them a very brief synopsis and then go into why you put it on here. Um... Loose adaptation of uh, Brady Stanellis's seminal, like early '90s, um, I don't know, satire of like conspicuous consumption uh, in the '80s. Uh, follows Patrick Bateman, um, played by um, 
fuck, how is his name? Christian Bale. Yeah, Christian Bale, um, who's a vice president at a mergers and acquisitions firm, um, been also a bloodthirsty psychopath uh, with a large ability to wax eloquently on 1980s pop music. Right. Um, and a penchant for sexual sadism. Um, mostly it's about him um, murdering a contemporary, uh, Paul Allen, um, who he's insanely jealous of. Um, and the subsequent fallout from that. Um, Bateman in the novel is 100% an unreliable narrator um, and is somewhat of an unreliable narrator here, although they kind of hold back on that idea until the end of the movie as to whether or not what you're seeing is real. Um, like I would say, well, like maybe the last 20 minutes where they really kind of fully embrace that idea that what you're seeing may not actually be what's happening. Right. Um, it starts with the cat. Yeah. When feed, feed the cat to the ATM right. or whatever. And from that point on, you're not sure. Like that's when yeah. they express doubt. Um, but just a really, uh, Inject out, I guess. Really, like, super dark satire of the Reagan years. Um, it's kind of like uh, anti Wall Street in a lot of ways. Like, these people that are so emotionally vacuous and empty, um, despite their large amounts of wealth, that they can't even recognize each other as human beings to the point where like, they don't even know who they're talking to half the time. Right. Um, having their various like affairs and lives that no, there's no recourse to, um, which is why Bateman is such an interesting character because Bateman is the logical recourse to the lives these people live. Like he's almost, I don't know, like the equalizing like force of nature. And still no one cares, like, despite the fact that he's murdering people, it's ignored or not even really acknowledged. Um, and again, like, maybe Paul Allen is still alive and in London, but maybe he's dead. <clears throat> but you'll never know, because no one is willing to acknowledge the fact that he's basically even missing. Um, I don't know, it's just a really well-made movie. Oh, uh, let's, let's real quickly get into this now rather than later. So... Okay. What's your what's your thoughts on this movie in terms of that and like in terms of the movie, not the book, because I think the book might be different from the movie, possibly. So, um, in the, in how you're supposed to view it, do you it's, see it as did, did he actually kill Paul Allen and kill all those people? So it's the one real flaw of the movie in that I don't know that you ever get enough information to say one way or the other, because um, there's the scene with the. Um, the real estate agent in Paul Allen's apartment. Yeah. That definitely points to the fact that there's some like hushed up conspiratorial action happening where Paul Allen is dead and no one wants to talk about it because it might lower the property values. Yeah, you can and um, you can read that scene even both ways, is that she really truly doesn't know what he's talking about and she's scared of him though. Right, he's or, just a creep right. that happens to be in, in the apartment. Right. Um and then the scene with uh, the lawyer um, at the end of the movie, um, where the lawyer like emphatically says that he had lunch with you know Paul, 
twice the week before in London and um, doesn't even recognize Christian Bale or, um, you know, uh, Patrick Bateman for being right. Bateman, which is one of the running jokes that everybody thinks that he's Haberstram or Harris, <laughs> right. somebody right. else. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the joke of this movie, my personally, is that he did kill Paul Allen, but everybody's so self-obsessed that they don't know who that the lawyer doesn't know who Paul Allen is. So I've, I've always thought that he didn't kill Paul Allen. I've always thought that he was just like, he's so image conscious and so self-obsessed that that's the fiction that he creates to make himself feel better Mm. about being lesser than other people. Um, Although I don't know because He's definitely like a sadist. Right. Um, but just in the context of the movie, I think that I think you're given more evidence in the context of the movie that things happened and people just don't care. Right. Rather than it didn't happen. Right. And, and um, the thing is, is like Ellis, I think, has hinted that those things didn't happen in the book. And Genevieve Turner and the writer of the movie that, that adapted the movie and um, Heron have hinted that those things did happen. And well, it's more because, what you just said, right? Because Ellis is approaching it from a strict satire perspective, and Ellis is kind of a fucked up dude himself. Sure. Like, as a person. Whereas I think that Mary Heron is approaching it more of like a... like an anti... machismo, you know, like... the alpha male... Um, breadwinner image of like the 1980s, mm-hmm. like successful man, right? Um, and I think that's the way that um, what's his name, uh, Bale, like carries that role as well, mm-hmm. of this guy that's like the apex predator, but is also this completely self-conscious, socially awkward weirdo. Like at the same time, right? Like, um, like right? He knows so much about pop culture and stuff like right. that. It's like, but it's all just the affectation to make himself seem more interesting than what he is. See, I, I don't think. I, I think that's the only time where it's not an affectation. I think that's the genuine emotion of that man coming through is his love for '80s pop music, like the fact that he can wax so eloquently on why duke is like the turning point in genesis's musical. oh right yeah maybe that's not the right word because he does believe in everything that he's saying i think um because yeah. the opposite the counterpoint to those kind of conversations are at the first dinner scene where he um is basically just spouting off like socially conscious like liberal right. catchphrases right um we have to educate the children. We have right. to care about the homeless. We have right. to clothe our veterans. Like yeah. all these things that he's uh-huh. saying. And, and no one can disagree with him because obviously everything is true, but it's not like he means it. It's just this well-rehearsed, sure. like parroted speech that he has. Um, yeah, and nobody actually cares anytime he's talking about those things, like about the, the music as well. Like nobody's actually listening to him. Exactly. They, they don't care, but they're not allowed to not care. Which right. Which is what I think is... Yeah. Like the most interesting thing. Yeah. I always like that. That idea that um you know, this they're like kind of just trapped in this idea that they have to pretend like things have meaning where in reality all they care about is am I gonna get an Dorsia 
for dinner. So let me ask you a question because I was actually um, I remember like I was really interested in this movie being um, adapted, this novel being adapted when it was first announced in the late '90s because it was one of the <clears throat> one of the things that I had read as a kid that I you know was one of my I don't know how to describe it. Like it always made me feel superior. Like oh well, I've read American Psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really interested in the movie in it being adapted, and you know that um, Oliver Stone was at one point attached to direct this movie, hmm. um, with Leonardo DiCaprio being the star. And I was I was watching it um, this weekend. I was thinking about like how much would he have fucked up like this entire movie? Like it just would have been a serial killer, movie right? With Oliver Stone attached to it, sure, it would have been bad. And while I like Leo, I don't see Leo in this role. No, he's, um, I mean, especially, so when would this have been filmed? 98, 99 probably was principal photography. Do you know how much he would have been pushing his hair back in that movie? Oh my God, right. <laughs> I mean, it was it's fucking Gilbert Grape out there, like serial killing people at that point. So, um, and I guess he made The Island around the same time as that too. Like it was probably concurrent because I think The Island is 2000 as well. Right. Um, and he's a child in that movie, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Bale has that perfect blend of like this awful like alpha male I don't know. He does and and Bale's method is I mean, he makes himself into this guy, like physically. Yeah. For yeah. this movie, you know, because what is it? It's, it's you know, it's not too, it's not too many more years later. It's like, oh, um, like what that man does to himself and his body is insane. Like for these roles, right, but yeah, he becomes a, that apex predator, right? I um, remember reading, um, because he does the machinist mm-hmm. probably three years after this, I guess. I think the machinist is like 05 or 06, somewhere yeah. in that neighborhood, yeah. um, where he was eating one apple a day for like months, right. And then the same thing with um, Rescue Dawn, isn't that mm-hmm. what it's called? Yeah. Um, where they basically had to film the movie in reverse because he lost all this weight so he could be like the Dieter, whatever the pilot's mm-hmm. name was, who got rescued. Right. Um, and then like regain the weight so they could film in reverse of him like mm-hmm. being lost in the jungle for years. It's just, right. It's, he's crazy. Yeah. But his performance is great. Um, Chloe Seventy is really great in it. Um, I think that uh, shit, the guy that plays Bryce, um, really good performance. And it's just, it's it's a really, it's a very class. Oh, and Defoe, Defoe is, I don't know, it's been hilarious. Is like the sort of bumbling, like maybe he knows more than he knows, but right. in the end, yeah. like he doesn't actually know anything, right? Um, like I really like that character. Yeah. A lot of it was uh, it's it's pretty different from the book, like in the way that a lot of things are presented, um, including Bateman himself, um, who again like he's more of a braggart, and here he's like more of like a broken man that like knows what he wants to do, but maybe doesn't necessarily want to do it, but also has no reason to not do it. Whereas in the book he's, and that's Ellis too. I think. I mean, yeah. Ellis. Oh, this is something. Yeah, he is. Um, Did you ever read Lunar Park? I think that was my favorite Ellis book. Um, no, I did not read that one. I read Imperial Bedrooms. Yeah, that's that's the one that I've never read. Um, yeah. Lunar Park is like a horror book. 
basically okay. like a car story um, about, I guess, the disintegration of a marriage. But it's really well done. I, I, I think you would like that book a lot. Hmm. That was one of those weird ones that I found at, like, Borders, maybe, or something. And I don't know. Or maybe I got it off of, like, eBay or something like that. I, I had a secondhand copy of it from I probably got it from one of those secondhand bookstores, but um, just uh, you know. Anyway, Ellis yeah. is a weird dude, and somebody that I like alternately like quite a bit and kind of despise at the same time. <laughs> I think that he's pretty much encapsulated with um the Bateman character. Yeah, that was his last uh last fiction novel was um Peril Bedrooms. Yeah, he hasn't written so anything you know in ten that, years. Um, you know that uh, Rules of Attraction is a pseudo-prequel to this, yes. in a way? Yep. Um, with the fact that Patrick Bateman's younger brother is... Um, shit, what's that actor's name? Sean, Sean Wallace Scott? No. No, Dawson. Who's Dawson in um, Dawson's Creek? Uh, James Vanderbeek. Yeah, James Vanderbeek. In mm-hmm. that, right. Um, is Patrick yeah. Bateman's younger brother. Um, to the point where in... Um, rules of attraction or laws of attraction, whatever the book's called. Uh, Patrick Bateman has a, a role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm sure that I actually kind of remember critics being like, so when I saw this movie, I did not expect it to be particularly good, I guess, and was like super surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Right. Um, I kind of remember the ad campaign for it being like really. I don't think that it sold itself very well. And I, I would like, after this, I kind of want to go back and watch like some of the trailers. Cause I remember like not being like super impressed with the trailers for it before it came out, even though I was like really excited to see it. And I, you know, kind of like eagerly anticipated it being made. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can understate here as good as everything is in this movie. I think it's very well directed. I think Karen did a good job. I think that the script is solid. All those supporting characters you talked about, I think the acting is do a good job. This movie falls flat on its face if Bale isn't as good as he is. A hundred percent, yeah. Like, um, like Bale is, um, Bale's amazing in a lot of movies, but Bale is absolutely incredible in this. Um, like the fact that he can make you still be captivated, I think, through this, despite how fucking sadistic he is, um, and and wants you to keep watching. And uh, yeah, it's an incredible performance. Um, I would certainly rank it. It has to be like in the top couple of his career, probably. Yeah, I agree. Mary Heron has a very um, weird trajectory of her career. Um, she actually, she directed the movie I like quite a bit in the Notorious Betty Page. Um, but then she directed this weird, like, pseudo-horror movie called The Moth Diaries. And the absolutely yeah. abysmal um, Charlie Says with uh, Matt Smith as uh, Charles Manson. Mm. Um, and not even abysmal, just, like, very wrong-headed, in my opinion. Like, the way that she went about directing it. Um... But yeah, like she's a she's a pretty interesting director, and um, I shot Andy Warhol as her as well, which is a pretty, um, maybe not a, it's 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 flawed, you know, but it's worth watching, I think. Right. Um, especially if you're kind of interested in like that time period or yeah, 
like Warhol or the factory in general or whatever. But um, but yeah, so I think that I mean this movie is a lot of fun to watch, I think, and um as long as you can stomach and honestly, like not even as violent as you would think of it is. Um, because a lot of the violence takes place off screen and it's just like blood splatter. Um, and the movie had a NC-17 rating until they made it get cut down. So um, there is like a director's cut version that re-adds something like, I don't know, 30-some seconds of footage that got they cut or that had a, had an NC-17 rating. So Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting that you say that because the criticism that I drew, that I drew which I actually wasn't going to mention until you said that, is um, what you would expect in the, some degree for this movie. Um, but it comes from De- Desen Howe. Um, the Washington Post that I mentioned earlier, uh, he talks, he, he's disturbed by the um, violence in this. And he makes the point early on in his review that this contains some passing similarities to Clockwork Orange with Alec, or um, Bateman being kind of like the Alex the Drew character, um, even to the point where he kills a homeless man just out of nothing but disgust, you know? Um, uh, and I can see that. And he says that, like, the, you know, these... Um, you know, violence as a metaphor was interesting when Bur- Burgess published that book and even interesting when Kubrick made that movie. But like now in 2000, it's not, the, the metaphor isn't there anymore. And um, he says that there's nothing beyond bloodshed and gallows humor, just intellectually secondhand implications about materialism, conformity, and misogyny. Um. And I think that's really underselling. Yeah, that's missing a lot of the point. Yeah. I mean, number one, this is like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre situation to me where you don't see him stab the homeless man. Like, you you see it in profile, but you don't see a knife go in. Mm -hmm. You don't see him do anything to the two prostitutes. You don't see him do anything to Paul Allen. It's all done off camera. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's no... You never see a blade enter skin in this movie. Like you right. never see someone's blood spilled in like graphic close-up. It's just implied. And I think that I think it's a testament to how good the movie is that you know this person watching it would think like that he had seen mm-hmm. those things. Right. So, and I think that the satire is there, and I think the satire is good, and I think that it's. I think the satire. Well, right, the satire is the whole movie. Right, and I... The fact that he goes into a building at one point, it's one of my favorite scenes. It's after the cat, like, feed, feed, feed the kid and feed me the right, kid or whatever. Yeah. When he goes into the building um, and then, like, in, in a manic state, you know, shoots people in this building and then goes into his building and the security guard's there and it's, like, the same building. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's, like, so surreal to see, but it's, again, it's, like, one of these little things that's just making the point. Everything's the same. You know, like, it, it actually puts you in the role of all those people that can't distinguish the characters from each other. <clears throat> right. Yeah, that's a good point. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this movie, and I think that, um, like, in terms of, like, a really black satire on the wealthy, and especially, you know, that um, Bright Lights, Big City um, wealth, that was so, uh, like the Alex P. Keaton, um, secret of my success, whatever, 
like this is what we should aspire go to for the, Go for the trifecta. Is there another one? Uh, there is, but I can't remember what it is now. Not Doc Hollywood. No. no. <laughs> but um, I, was, I, was, I was thinking Bright Lake's Big City in terms of the novel. Not mm. so much the, the movie. Right. Um, but I think I got the trifecta because I said Alex P. Keaton, Secret of My Success, and Bright Lake. True. true. If we're going to count... Uh, the character of keaton in the tv show yes right. you, you did you got it yeah right yeah there you go. podcast over <laughs> nailed it yeah um okay so number three on your list is 1941 citizen kane directed and starring orson wells also starring joseph cotton Dorothy Cummingor and Everett Sloan. It has a 100% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 90% from audiences. Just tell us a little bit about this movie, I guess, and then um, go ahead and tell us. Actually, tell us why it's number Yeah, three. I think that's the more interesting right. thing to talk about, honestly. Uh-huh. Um, it's Citizen Game. I mean, I think that even people with like a passing familiarity with like American film know what Citizen Kane is. Um, Brief summation is the story of the life of one of the most wealthy men in the country, um, Charles Foster Kane, um, who rises, you know, through um, like has this fortune kind of thrust upon him through fate um, and becomes the preeminent like newspaper man and um, newsmaker of the time. Um, a lot of, at the time, there was a lot of parallels to like um, William Randolph Hearst. Um, what's his name? The other one, the uh, like Rockefeller. Right. Um, in our modern days, a lot of like interesting parallels to people like Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch. Um, and sort of like a spiritual forerunner to shows like Secession. Um, where, you know, these people who have, like, unlimited wealth and the ability to control the narrative of the media, um, which Foster, you know, which Kane, like, has no problem gloating over the fact that, like, people will think what he tells them to think. Um, super innovative movie in terms of camera techniques, like rack focus and um camera placement and framing and the use of matte painting um really like two brilliant performances i mean there's uh, every performance in this movie is great but brilliant performances from orson wells as kane and joseph cotton is um max right isn't that his name maximilian or whatever like kane that's uh, Le- it's leland isn't it leland leland you're right um the reason it's number three is just because, like, I don't know. I just, it's, like, too easy to make a number one, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, because obviously this is maybe, like, I think there's a really good argument that this is the most important American film ever made and maybe the most important English language film ever made. And I don't think that there's an argument against its greatness. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's just too easy to talk about. Like, and we could talk about it forever. And you and I talked about it last night for a while, um, like offline, but just the brilliance of the camera work, the look of it, like it's got, 
it's just it's an immaculate black and white like it's so perfectly filmed um we talked about metropolitan's dialogue is a little too on point and this kind of has the same it suffers from the same problem but it's not a problem in citizen king because every bit of dialogue almost to a fault is delivered like perfectly and carries weight and import and i don't know it's just it's it's just brilliant it's a masterpiece one of if you've never seen citizen kane i honestly think i can say that it's life-changing to see it like especially if you love movies um it was life-changing to me like i watched this movie back to back when i was like 14 years old running it from the library and just being like so amazed at how great it was um and still stands up you know i still had a really enjoyable time watching it and i think one of the things too and what i i commented to you like and text you this is that it feels so familiar because you see so many other movies that have like taken from you know like right you see so much of modern cinema that still is being pulled from you know things that wells was doing what 80 years ago at this point so yeah i i i i was telling you last night that it's like i tried i tried to just watch the movie this time without focusing on all those filmmaking elements because it's it's a film that's so studied and you studied it in school and like you said and it's like i've studied it in school so it's like taught constantly and And it's a film that lends itself to just learning about movies, I think, because it is older and it's the first of its kind in so many different ways, um, or at least pulling all those elements together, I suppose. And but I am constantly, constantly. Yeah, and it's. Sorry, what were you saying? No, I was just going to say that you're exactly right. Like I, I tried to watch it too just from like a pure film like just watching the movie and i was was telling you last night like we watched those sci-fi movies the past like couple of weeks you know for the podcast last week so i've been really like acutely aware of like matte painting in movies Mm -hmm. and sitting there watching this movie that's 30 years before anything we watched last week and it's like man like the mat the mats in this movie are just so much better and cleaner and more effective than shit in like Soylent Green or something. You know what I mean? Sure. And it's like, and that's 30 years later that they still can't do what this, uh, this, you know, fucking crazy innovative movie did. Right. And the thing that I'm always shocked by is when I, because I can't help myself paying attention to it, is the, is the mise-en-scene in the movie of just what's on the, what's in the frame and how that one single picture still, if, if you, if you, if you paused it, tells the story of that scene usually. And it's like, if you, if you can pause almost like I, like most parts of the movie and study it just in terms of the of what is on the screen in that exact moment and how it relates to the plot at that point. So it's like, you know, when 
she tries to kill herself and this has been well documented so i'm not saying anything new necessarily but it's like when she's tries when she tries to kill herself and like she's laying in bed and he's sitting there pounding on that door the way that the camera is placed she's in the forefront on the bed the pills are right behind her on the table right. and then you see the door behind it where you know he is sitting there pounding and it makes a direct connection between suicide by it just tells you the story of like her in bed wanting to die pills him right and and his anger because he's pounding at the door and you can do that with pretty much every single scene in this it's like uh what's his name everett sloan plays um what's 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 his lackey bernstein like bernstein in that gigantic office with the painting of like of of kane just bare like over top of him just watching you know, it's like that hero worship that goes on with that character. It's like everything, everything that you look around that office, you can see, you know, how he's, you know, obsessed with right. his devotion to Kane himself. Um, you know, I was telling you last night, probably I went on for too long about it, but that idea that it's like that Jed Leland and Bernstein are on either side of Kane, even if it's a representation of a telegram, they're always pitted on the opposite sides of Kane or the representations right. of Kane to show those two different sides of who this man was. And it's it's absolutely brilliant, like what they're able to do just in the frame itself and plate in terms of placement. Yeah. Uh, and that and was me. That was me trying to watch it without right doing any of that or thinking well, about it. Because you can't help it. Like it's just so mm-hmm. neat and yeah. so well filmed, and so the cinematography is like absolutely perfect. Um, all the stuff you pointed out, the direction. Like there's so many scenes. Like one of the I don't know, like most uncomfortable scenes in the movie is um, where he's forcing everyone to clap around him for um, uh, his wife's. Uh, like opera debut yes. which is terrible and yeah. just like the twitch of the eye with like the light like cutting off like right under his eyes so all you can see mm-hmm. is anger and disappointment and like self-reclamation but he refuses to like be the one to admit that she's yeah. the failure basically and i think the one thing that gets uh not talked about enough in this movie watching it again because i now that I've seen more of those movies than I maybe ever have before in my life is um, Robert Wise does the editing for this um, when he's younger. And um, I, I paid attention a little bit more to the editing and um, it's actually really underrated with the, the editing job in this, because I think so many other things get mentioned about it so often that I don't right. think anybody really talks about, um, about, about how good that is often. Um, even though I'm pretty sure he won an Oscar for it, but. But, you know, Wells kind of, like, overshadows a lot of things about this movie in terms of his legend in Hollywood, so. I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, like, and also, like, this is going to sound really dumb. Do you ever feel like Citizen Kane should be longer than it is? Yes. Like, I swear to God, I feel like I, every time I think about this movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, three hours long at least. Right, yep. And then, like, I look at the runtime, it's like, man, this isn't even two hours. Like, it's not. I, I would have, if you would have asked me this time, and I've seen this movie at least a dozen times in my life, and 
if you would have asked me before I sat down to start watching it and I looked at the runtime, I would have said it was like two hours and 30 minutes. Yeah, definitely not. No, it's like, what, an hour 55 or something like that, maybe? Yes. I can't remember. Well, 105 minutes, right? Isn't that how long it is? I think. While you look that up, um, I'm just going to tell you, like, the composite 10% of people that give this a negative review among uh, audience members is that basically is that they think it's overrated. Yeah, that's dumb. Um, it's it's just under two hours. It's 119 minutes. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, I don't know how you can overrate this movie. And I, like, I've seen this movie, you know, you said it yourself, like, uh, two or three times through school and then probably, like, another five or six times just on my own, um, plus this most recent time with the podcast, and just always impressive and always, you know. Yeah. Like, there's not even a point in justifying the overrated thing with a retort because it's just not. And if you've never seen Citizen Kane, you'll see how amazing it is, like, the first time you see it, I think. Okay. Um, number two on your list is 1948's Unfaithfully Yours, directed by Preston Sturgis, starring Rex Harrison, Linda Darnell, Barbara Lawrence, and Rudy Valley. Has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number two on your list? Um, so this is our third appearance by Mr. Sturgis um, in a top five list. Um, previously with uh, Solomon's Travels and The Lady Eve. Um, Unfaithfully Yours follows Rex Harrison, who plays a uh, um, British conductor, um, who, you know, we didn't even talk about the high society aspect, really, of Citizen Kane either, which I think is funny, because we were just waxing, so whatever. Right. Like, well, I mean, what, 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 it's certainly a negative look. I mean... Certainly, if we just go back to King quickly, it's like it's certainly a negative look, I think, at high society overall. Um, and I think it's well documented because, I mean, if you don't know the Hollywood history, Wells' career is destroyed pretty much. Right. Um, because of the parallels to William Randolph oh, Hearst. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, those of you that are, aren't aware of that, like because Hearst owns so many newspapers and newspaper magnet. Um, and this was seen as a personal attack on him. It basically, like, uh, what they wouldn't review well films, right? A lot of the papers that he owned, right? And they or, would do everything they could to discredit him. Sure. Um, so it destroyed Wells' career by basically having this personal attack. Um, even if it was a composite, it's still a personal attack on William Randolph Hearst. Right. Um, uh, he just had plausible deniability in doing it. Uh, by saying it was composite, and um, it pretty much destroys his career. So um, I. I and it's because it's a negative look at high society and that type of personality in a lot of ways. Um, do you think it's fair? Some people say say that they think it's a fair look at Kane. Do you think it's fair? Because yes. I, I think it's pretty negative. No, I think it's fair. I think here's a man who came from humble beginnings and had the best of intentions. And the fact that he was so, had so much hubris that, he kind of like led to his own downfall, but recognized that in the end and ultimately dies like thinking of the last moment of true happiness in his life, which was, you know, the last unencumbered moment he had, which was free and sledding 
at his mother's like whatever boarding house. Yeah, like, I, 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 I wonder if Rosebud itself isn't even like plausible deniability built in to give him some kind of humanity when there's hints that there might be very little there. <clears throat> I don't I, I, I think he is human. I think he's just I I think that he truly believes that he's the end all be all of everything in the world and that leads to his downfall. And he's always too proud to admit that that's the case. You know, like when he's losing his family both times, like his wife and his son and then his wife, you know, he's just unable to, um, unable to reconcile himself with admitting that it's his fault. And it's in the very end, I think, when he realizes when he's alone and everyone's left him, I think, that he realizes that it is his fault. Okay, so I'm going to let you get back to unfaithfully yours but i quickly i just want to say what do you want to be and the answer everything you hate might be one of the greatest lines in movie history that's all i want to say about king (laughs) um rex harrison plays uh alfred decarter uh world famous um symphony conductor um returns from a trip to england where he finds out that his boorish wealthy um, brother-in-law um took the instructions to look after um, DeCarter's wife as being the spy on her and see if she was um, being faithful to him. Um, That's a comedy of errors, basically, where um, DeCarter finds out, even though he doesn't want to know, that she had spent 38 minutes in the room of his secretary, um, a handsome younger man. Uh, DeCarter's an older man, and his wife, um, Daphne, is a um, younger, like beautiful woman, and his secretary Tony is like a handsome younger man. Um, fucking brilliant sequence where, as he's conducting three very separate and distinct pieces of music, um, he imagines the three ways that his resolution to the idea that he thinks he's been cheated on could end. Um, one of which is him staging this perfect murder of his wife, one of which is him basically forgiving her and like letting her go to be with the younger man and one is him playing russian roulette and committing suicide um all of which are ridiculous um he ultimately tries to stage this perfect murder and completely bungles everything just like destroys his apartment um and it turns out it was a misunderstanding anyway um it's not a very modern look i think at like like, he really is, like, a cad in modern standards, but I guess, like, at the time, it was considered, like, oh, well, he's just the caring, jealous husband or whatever. Um, really fantastic performance from Rex Harrison um, and also yeah. uh, Rudy Valley as, like, in a smaller role. Um, and just really, like, laugh-out-loud funny still at points. Like, there's times in that movie where especially like the, a lot of the slapstick towards the end. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of like that kind of stuff, but it really did make me laugh out loud a few times watching it again this time. I find older slapstick like this much better than any modern slapstick at all. Yeah, because it, it definitely has the feel of like the theatrical to it, mm-hmm. where it's like the overreaction and the... Yeah, there's a lot of vaudeville in those kind of things yeah. to me. Yeah, But um, just a really well done... Um, funny movie Uh, again like the conceit of him like being driven by his jealous rage to conduct the best pieces of his life 
where like the crowd is just enthralled and like going crazy over this guy who's like imagining murdering his wife and framing her lover in his head. It's just um I don't know, just just a really great movie. And Sturgis always I think has a good ear for dialogue and a good way of like making his characters engaging and moving the plot along without like dragging down like or slowing the pace. Um, the film clips along at a pretty steady pace, I think, and is just really eminently watchable and enjoyable. Yeah. Um, so the high, high society, society yeah. obviously, because like they're all very wealthy, and the only reason that it happens anyway is because his um, brother-in-law's family has like supported private detectives to spy on each other for their whole lives, right? And has them on retainer, <laughs> right? And it's uh, I mean the whole thing is keep an eye on. <laughs> Right, yeah. And not even that, like, just, you know, watch, no, it's, it's, it's watch out for her. That's what it, yeah, Meaning, yeah. like, right. I want you to take her to dinner if right. she was alone, not like. Right, right. Yeah, it's a really, right. really. It is, yeah. And, um. And that interaction between Harrison and, um, Valet. I'll be honest, um, I think the, it's, the, I think it's the best part of the movie. Uh, I'll yeah, be it's, honest. Yeah, it's, God, the, the whole beginning where, like, Harrison is like ripping his clothes off, and August is just like, I don't know. I was just doing what you wanted me to do. Like, I'm sorry yeah. you feel that way. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's. I I love Preston Sturgis. I think that maybe my favorite comedic director of all time, and definitely somebody who has like truly an ear for the dialogue between like two people. And how like turns of phrases can just be like he's he's perfected like back and forth, you know, patter basically. Um, I don't know. I, I I really love this movie a lot. It's so funny. Every single thing you mentioned, like there's no point in going through this. Every single thing you mentioned, I found uh, Spencer S, who's a super reviewer on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and I thought like well-written like short review that he gave um, about this movie. Um, seems to be familiar with Sturgis and stuff like that, but every single thing you just mentioned about liking about this movie is something that he points out that like he's dialogue um, uh, and the slapstick stuff like is what forced him to like say that he didn't like it that much. Um, and he thinks that Pete, Sturgis gets too much credit like um, for that kind of stuff, like when it's really not that good and hasn't really. Uh, that that it's not really any different from the rom com filth of today, um, as he says. And um, do you think it's too? I, mean, I know it's like you know it's it's the forties, but do you think it's like? Too... Do you think one of the flaws in that movie possibly is the abruptness of the end? That's the only thing that I came away thinking. Like this feels like it wraps up real fucking quick. He really does forgive her, like, immediately, basically. But, I mean, I think that's... So, you and I have talked about, like, in the coming months, we're going to do, um... I called it the story of an evening or whatever, the story of a day. That's what this is. I mean, this is a guy who, in the span of, like, 24 hours of his life, and not even that, probably, like, 12 hours, is because he loves his wife so much and is so like honestly like insecure about her youth and beauty compared to his age is like 
just hitting like these peaks and valleys of like jealousy and despondency. And I think it probably would be that quick. You know what I mean? Like somebody that really loves his loves his wife, probably to an unhealthy degree. I mean, there's a lot of like other questions there that you know Sturgis isn't like really asking. But I don't know. Yeah, there I there's mean, the, a lot of questions that he's not asking about this movie, but I ignored all that stuff because it's not the movie. But right, because I mean, it's just enjoyable. I mean, like right. okay, like I I get this dude, like what he's saying, and maybe if it's not your cup of tea, it's just not. But right. my my three favorite Sturgis movies are this, um, Lady Eve, and uh, Sullivan's Travels, and you know I think the. Um, like Joel McRae, Veronica Lake interaction, like it's just there's not a whole lot of depth, but it's really like great. Like what is there? You know what I mean? Like they're Sturgis just captures you know those those moments of dialogue between two people that are in love with each other, and he does a really great job of doing it. I think. And, I mean, I can see, like, how people wouldn't like it, I suppose, and I don't really fault somebody for, you know. Yeah, the Spencer S. Uh, compares it to the Palm Beach story. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. No, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. But, I mean, like, in the Lady Eve, you know, fucking Fonda and Stanwyck, like, that's... Stanwyck's And there's definitely, like, Jesus. animosity of points between them, but it's yeah. one of my favorite, my favorite male-female interactions, like, ever, you know? Like that's, I just, just, it's that's, so a, that's a, I'm going to write that down real quick. That's a good podcast episode, possibly. Is um classic male female like lead pairings. Yeah. But I, anyway, this is it's it's a great movie, and I love it. I'm just trying to get Key Largo on the list, possibly. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what'd you say? I saw that. <laughs> oh, okay. I feel like we've talked about Key Largo. We never talked about Key Largo. We talked about we Key talked Largo about because Orion came over on a random night and like watched Key. L- me, he and I watched Key Largo, and then can you can you imagine like it's so weird for me to think about just randomly going to someone's house and going inside and sitting down and doing something now. It's a bizarre concept now, right? Like That's it's why, so, like, it's so I got cool. a little giddy when I remembered it just now. Like it was like, oh man, that was that was really cool because I think like you ended up coming over after that maybe, and like you ended up coming over to smoke some cigarettes or something like that, and like we talked about that movie and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, I like Hilargo a lot. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it was like some drunken thing Orion and I came up with at the bars. Like, oh, we're gonna watch Key Largo. Like, and... oh man, see now you're gonna make me cry. Hmm. Okay. All right. So let's get Number to one. the reason this whole list exists in the first place is yep. because Frank built a list around this movie. Um, it is 1953's The Earrings of Madame Day. It is directed by Max Ophuls. It stars Charles Boyer, Danielle Daryu, and Vittorio De Sica. It has a 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 91% from audiences. I had never heard of this movie or never seen this movie beforehand. Um, so do you want to tell people a little bit about what this movie is and why it's number one over top of Citizen Kane, I should add. Um, so it's obviously, this is a 
like emotional number one. Um, because Citizen Kane is a better movie than the Mary Earrings of Madam Day. But uh focuses on um the titular earrings of uh this aristocratic uh French um I don't know what you call her. She's like a countess, kind of. She's married to the general of the French army, um, or a general of the French army. Um, to settle gambling debts, she sells her earrings. Uh, the jeweler she sells them to surreptitiously sells them back to her husband, so the husband doesn't like suffer some sort of um, embarrassment. But she's also pretended to have lost the earrings, so there's a scandal, kind of like someone stole them. Then the husband gives them to his mistress, who then sells them to um, some random fence in Constantinople, um, who then they're bought by um, the Italian uh, ambassador to France, who then falls in love with Madame Day and gifts the earrings to her. And then she pretends to find them, so her husband gets suspicious and realizes she's having an affair. And ultimately, it leads to uh, Vittoria De Sica getting um, shot, potentially, although you never actually see that on screen. Um, really beautifully filmed movie that is a, um, I think at least the first time you watch it, like a really tragic, almost like comedy of errors in the sense of the different connections of this one pair of earrings has to like bringing ruin, basically, to three different lives. Um, I think amazingly shot um, again, like we just talked about, you know, Fonda and Stanwyck um, and Lady Eve. Like I think that um, Victoria De Sica um, and uh, I can never remember her name. Danielle Daru. Yeah. Danielle uh, Daru. Um, one of my favorite male, female romantic pairings in any movie. Um, mostly cause I, I think De Sica is, just like crazy good in being this like hopeless romantic like doomed romantic um in the way that he casts his eyes and the way he carries himself um and a like pretty fantastic director and actor in his own right like beyond this movie um and one of the reasons also why the story of a day podcast exists too um but just like i don't know like i i love the um, I don't even know what you would call it, like the comedy of manners, maybe. Um, the like the idea of like the French general like inventing a reason to take offense to this Italian diplomat so he can challenge him to a duel, or so he doesn't have to admit that it's for his wife's honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and after like dishonoring his wife by having a mistress and you know, not really caring for her. She doesn't sleep in the same room as her and he's very dismissive of her until he thinks she's going to leave him and then all of a sudden he cares about her just because it's property, which is all that matter to him anyway, which is the fact that the earrings were property, but he can never get past that back to the point where he's willing to ruin her life at the idea that he quote-unquote loves her um, just in order to not lose her because that's what matters to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Desika is willing to like sacrifice everything basically to like make sure that she's safe and happy and goes to like willingly goes to his death even though he could bow out of the duel like early on by apologizing for this perceived offense 
Um, but still, like, out of love for her, is willing to go to his death for it. Um, just really well filmed. Like, I, I love all the dance sequences. Like, I think they're, like, intoxicating. Um, I think the way that the stuff is filmed in her room, especially when she's, like, in bed. And she's not even, like, a hugely sympathetic character. It's just, like, it's almost like how I feel about The Awakening, really. Like, the um, Kate Chopin novel where I, I kind of think that Madame Day is sort of disgusting, but at the same time, like, I understand, like, her eyes being open for the first time from being this bored, you know, bourgeois, like, matron to, like, realizing that there's a possibility of her having love right. in the world and, like, being willing to risk everything for it. Sure. Even though she makes some really dumb decisions. Right. And, like, some heartbreaking scenes, like, where she has to give the earrings up to her... um her niece that just had a baby like as a way of punishment like because her husband realizes how much they mean to her now even though they meant nothing to her before and that's another thing where it's like a personal affront to his pride not because he cares about her but just because someone else cares about her more um so yeah i don't know and Ophels is um just a really great director in general like i um, he he has a really good uh, Lola Montes um, movie that he did. Um, if you're familiar with her, the exotic dance French dancer mm. from like the 20s and 30s. Um, and then another one that's like an anthology called Le Placier, which is really good. But um, I think a really underrated director, a guy that I didn't find until like much later in my life that I discover him and like really come to appreciate him. But um, I love Madame Day. It's one of my Probably one of my 20 or 30 favorite movies of all time, honestly. Jeez, really? Okay. Yeah, I, I really, really like it a lot. I mean, having watched it for the first time, I think, yeah, it's, like, brilliantly directed. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I I think it looks beautiful. Um, I like the performances. I know uh, the only person I could find that, like, negative review of this is David Nuzair from Real Film Reviews. Um who gets on Rotten Tomatoes um, out of sheer uh, uh, volume of reviews that he writes um, more than anything. But um, he criticized the performances in this and finds them pretty dull, which I don't agree with. But I think the performances are pretty good. I think my main complaint about this, and we've talked about this a little bit, and I've thought of more since we talked about it. I think my biggest complaint about this movie is the second act. Um, if it's like it feels like every other scene the more i've thought about it when i told you that it felt like there's a pacing issue that kind of like made it a little dull to me at times um it felt old to me it feels like every other scene in the second act it's like okay that's a good scene and then the next scene it's like i either don't remember it or it's just going through the motions to get to the next good scene and it just feels like that second act is off it has a great setup great 30 minutes like opening i thought of like maybe the 40 minutes even by the time they meet and like kind of start falling in love and then it kind of goes through the motions of like the affair and stuff like that even though there's some good scenes in there don't get me wrong and then him trying to slowly figure it him slowly figuring it out and there's some good scenes in there even but it's like every other scene in between there just kind of feels like it's meh and then the last 25 minutes 30 minutes are fucking fantastic again um, so I think it's a really s a phenomenal first and third act and a second act that has really great scenes in it. Um, and it just felt like the pacing's off in the middle to me. 
I mean, I guess I understand that. I just, I don't necessarily agree. Like, I think that that slowed down second act is important to just kind of build like the, almost like the secret intoxication of their love for each other, you know? So, and to paint, so you don't just view the general as being like a cardboard cutout villain, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that second act is important to kind of establish him as like an actual man, you know, like a human being and a guy that is so used to having the upper hand. You know, there's the thing like where, where he meets um, the ambassador and they're at the, uh, we're at the speech together Mm -hmm. where um, the French ambassador is talking about like France someday embracing its enemies as friends or whatever and the only thing that the ambassador can do is he keeps like peering in his book and what he has in his book is a letter from uh, madame day um with uh whatever it is like a flower that's been pressed into the pages um and it's the only thing he cares about like he's there at this like important function and it's he's like a a schoolboy, you know like looking at this letter because he's so in love with her and when he drops it with the husband, because the husband realizes like what's happening, or at least like what his intentions are. Right. And the husband's so like coldly, pointedly dismissive of it. Like I don't know. Like I, I, I love that stuff. Like those scenes, you know, where he gives them the opportunity to like back off. Like, there's no point in like pretending that we don't know what you're doing with my wife and mm-hmm. stuff like. That, you know what I mean, or. I don't know, like all that stuff. Like I just, I, I love it, and I think it's important to the overall, like ending of the movie, which I think is phenomenal. Like the end, yeah. And the idea that, you know, it's this object, like this almost like, I don't know what to call it, but like, just this thing that's like, connecting all these events and how, like they're really like kind of destroying all of their lives, like this pair of earrings. And had she have just been honest in the first place, like none of it ever would have happened. But then like, is her life so much worse if she never goes down that path? You know, if she decides to sell her furs instead of selling her earrings, you know what I mean? Right. Or sell her like cross, which she never wears instead of selling her earrings because of this vain conceit to like some sort of like spirituality instead of like whatever being dedicated to her husband. I don't know. There's just, there's so many like small aspects to the movie that I think are just brilliantly done. And I think it's kind of a like daring topic. I know it's based on a book, but, and it's French too. In the French well, right. It's for, I was going to say, I, I, I thought that today, like honest, uh, when I was thinking about this podcast, when I was going to shower today, I was like uh, sitting there thinking about this movie and I was thinking like, man, that's really risque. Like, like to, to show, show, even if it's like not, sexualized because it's the 50s still to show right. this affair in the 50s i was like oh right it's french <laughs> that's they don't they don't they've always been ahead of us about like being open about those kind of things so they're on affairs with everybody i've seen sure. tons. <laughs> right there's another movie that almost made the list came really close 
Right. I mean, I think even unfaithfully yours, which is your uh, number of years before this, like five years before this, um, even the implication that the sister is having an affair is right. pretty risque for the time period. Yeah, I think it's even more than an implication. I think it's just a yeah, they don't cut it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's. I mean, the, his wife comes out and says it basically. Like, it's just right. You just have to put the pieces together. I knew where she was, even though I didn't want to know where she was. And sure. I couldn't bring myself to call where she right. was. I knew that she would be there. Man, is there a is there there's fucked up sexual shit in all of these, or at least in the sense of like. Not well, there's adultery, up, but I mean, there's adultery. Not well, not in the American Psycho. There's not, and there's not in the Metropolitan. Yeah, there's adultery in American Psycho. Oh yeah, you're right because all he's the people are cheating. With, yeah, 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 yeah. And, right. He's having sex with whatever. And, and, right, who's engaged to the guy from Six Feet on or not Six Feet Under? Um, yeah, closeted gay guy. Yeah, love. Big Love. Um, who was also played a closeted gay guy in Big Love? Yeah, like a closeted more. Yeah, and then the um. The Rick Van Slot and stuff in uh, right. Metropolitan. Yep. And yeah. I guess maybe that's another takeaway for the fabulously wealthy is that they're all like a bunch of weird perverts that have no filial um, loyalty. Maybe. Please sponsor us someone. I mean, it's and it's all very white. <laughs> um, yeah. Adultery is the whitest thing in the world. <laughs> It's it so really funny. is. It's 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 Kevin Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver in bed. That's right. That's right. Favorite. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that's why I'm so bored by that fucking movie. It's just it's whatever. It's 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 my life. It's everything I've seen all around me. All my life. I got it. I got it. So for you, I, let's let's you get it too. Shut up. Um, so look, I, I'm going to make this analogy. See if you agree with me. All right. Is I think Air Rings of Battle Day is a great movie, but I think you get more out of it than I do. Just like you get more out of Elliot's The Wastelands than I can ever get out of it. Yeah, that could be true. That's fine. I mean, that's the whole thing about these lists. It's always going to be subjective. Right. To my own opinion of what I think, for whatever reason, is the best. I think maybe it's because like I discovered Madam Day at a much like later point in my life, you know? Like I was probably yeah. 33, 34 when yeah. I first saw this movie. Um and like it was a revelation because I knew nothing about Max Opals or anything at that point. Right. Um so, you know, there's something to be said there about just kind of feeling like there's almost like a certain preciousness to it to me because it was something that I did find like later when I was older and my had like more established tastes and like anytime a movie moves me like that, especially now, like it really does a lot to cement it like in a special place in my heart. And I love Victoria DeSica. Like I think Victoria DeSica is fucking fantastic. Yeah. He's really good. He's, he's my favorite actor in that. Yeah. He's um, um yeah. Is he in other stuff? Well, he's the director of um, Bicycle Thieves and The Garden of the Finzi Contini's. Um, he's in like a ton of shit throughout like the 40s and 50s. Hmm. Um, 
what would you know him? Probably nothing, because I don't. No, you've well, you've you've seen Bicycle Thief, right? The Bicycle Thief? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. He, so directed, he directed that. Yeah. I would have swore that was okay. Um, and he directed the Garden of the Finzi Contini's, which is one of the um, best, like early um, anti-Nazi um, what else did he hold on, I'm looking through it's it's kind of hard to read his um, uh, his filmography because everything is in friggin' Italian um Marriage Italian style, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, pretty famous movie. Two women, pretty famous movie. Is really good. He directed that. Um, Bicycle Thief is probably, in my opinion, like his most famous. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know why I, for some reason, thought somebody else directed that. I don't know. I would I would have swore that yeah it just goes to show like how that time period I had known nothing about like foreign film really except for probably through you um yeah I would have sworn um, it was Fellini or something like that like an early Fellini film or some shit no it's him hmm. he's in a movie called um it's a really good movie it is yeah it's incredible <laughs> um. Fuck, I'm going to say this wrong. Let me find the exact. You think that I would like push myself to maybe learn a little bit of Italian at some point, but I don't. Mm-hmm. I can't pronounce anything. We're Americans. We don't need to learn any other language. It doesn't matter if our people are from there or not. You're going to get kicked out at some point. <laughs> I'm not going to want us in our fucking. I don't know. Radical ideas. There are radical um, ideas. Spend money on movies on Amazon and Google yeah. and pay into the capitalist system that they've built. Like I, I don't I think they're fine with that. I think they're okay um, with that. They're even giving us a he's they're giving us a payroll tax uh cut, you know? Like that's not true. That's not real. That doesn't benefit you anyway. All it does is it makes it so your employer doesn't have to match your Medicare and Social Security. Yes, I, know. I just make a chart. Oh, right. Well, I'm all angry about that. <laughs> um, oh, DeSica's in a movie called um, El General de la Rivera, uh, which is really good. Mm. Um, and if you have a chance, I actually have it on DVD if you ever want to watch it, but it's um, it's a really good movie. Oh, so I want to give a plug to a streaming service. Okay. Um, Peacock is yeah. free and is really good. 60% of what they have is free, yeah. yeah. But I mean, there's a lot Still of better really than, shit on it. Sure. Yeah. It's not edited. That's where I watched American Psycho. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I had to watch like five commercials when I was watching it, but it was still worth it to see it for free. And um, it's a really good transfer and there's nothing edited out of it, so... You know, I say I would say definitely like if you don't mind watching commercials, then it's worth a worth a download. Mm, 
It's oh. tired, tired in here. Okay, tired and shit in here. Been <laughs> a long life. It it has. Um. <clears throat> all right. So. I realized a couple of these movies you talked about scenes that you liked, and that used to be a standard question that I've just kind of dropped over time. It's like, what are some of your favorite scenes? Um, yeah, I'm just going to talk about it anyway, probably. So. Right. Yeah, if you have them, you'll probably mention them. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it was, all, it was really enjoyable to watch this. I mean, I love every one of these movies. Yeah, all these movies are really good. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. <clears throat> Okay, so we are taking a break next week, and then in the last week of August, we are coming back with the top five post-apocalyptic hidden gems, and I guess we can go ahead and talk about September at this point, right? Like, so... It's going to (laughs) happen. Maybe, y'all know. Um, Right, you're right, Greg. No idea. Um... First week of September, we're going to be doing Acid Westerns, top five Acid Westerns, and then we are doing the top five thrillers of the 2000s, and then we are ending the month with the top five movies that haven't aged well, which as of right now, I don't really think has a um, definitive theme yet but um no but frank's gonna frank's gonna do it he's gonna he's he's gonna make it all right he's gonna make it work it's gonna be a lot of self-reflection honestly because i'm gonna have to think about shit that i loved when i was a kid or at some point in my life that just really difficult to watch now right make you watch excalibur again i wouldn't watch it again yeah i would I would tell you that I watched it and wouldn't do it. Oh man, now I can never trust anything. <laughs> my world is my world's in shambles. Oh, okay. I, I am super looking forward to the um, post apocalyptic one coming in. There's some really good stuff on that list. So Yeah, yeah there's some really good stuff and yeah, because they're hidden gems, it's like things that um uh things that a lot of people might not know. I mean or might not think about because they're automatically predisposed to think that it's garbage. Spoiler. Secret spoiler. Right. That's probably, <laughs> I think what you're referring to is probably the movie that I like enjoyed but disliked the most overall because it's just oh, not right. a very good movie. But, um, That's fine. But there's two movies that I've watched out there that I think are really, really good. Like, like great movies that i'd never heard of before so um and the acid westerns like so far i'm two out of five through it um i've liked both um i really like one a lot that i never like seen before i actually don't think i've seen any of those before so uh, they're all going to be new to me um but one of them i really liked a lot and um then uh, you sent me the thrillers list last night, and um, there's some good stuff on there. I'll, I'll be interested. To yeah, I'm um, I'm pretty excited for the watch thrillers. or rewatch some of those. So. Um, so yeah, September's all set. Um, okay. Any final thoughts tonight, Frank? No. Again, it was just a really enjoyable list. I was yeah. glad to be able to talk about um, earrings of Madame Day. Yep. And now you never ever have to talk about it again, except in passing. So. I liked it. I just 
didn't like it as much as you. I can. That's that's fine. <laughs> Thank fine. you. All right. You will hold this against me like five years from now. At some no, point. it's fine. You can uh-huh. you can like what you want. You just have bad taste. You know? Right. <laughs> like liking Citizen Kane more than the earrings of Adam Damon is not a bad um opinion. Right. I mean, it's true. It's a better movie. It's just you know. Right. Sometimes, so, sometimes things grab you by the heart and don't let you go. Right. All right, so um, that's the list for tonight. That's our episode. Um, just a reminder that, again, if you're still listening to this, that means that um, you are um, really hardcore if you're still listening at this point at the very end because you know it's all wrapping up. Um, remember the ways that you can help us, though, is to always leave reviews wherever you listen to us. Um, you know That helps us the most. Sharing things on social media also helps us a lot. Um, other than that, thank you for listening and have a great night. Yep. Have a good night. Thank you.